Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're here to join with us as we work our way through the sermons that Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached. Each week we read through a selection of sermons, one a day, and this week it's 962 to 968. and That actually tips us over into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 17. Our featured sermon is still in Volume 16, and this week it's 965. The text is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The title is Purging Out the Leaven. The sermon itself was delivered at the Metropolitan Tabernacle on the Lord's Day morning of the 11th of December, 1870. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Evermore in Scripture, the doctrines of grace are married to the precepts of holiness. Where faith leads the way, the virtues follow in a goodly train. The roots of holiness and happiness are the same, and in some respects they are but two words for the same thing. So, holiness and happiness, the root and the fruit, the doctrines of grace and the precepts of godliness. Where faith leads the way, the virtues follow afterward. This is a typical emphasis of our preacher. Salvation in sin is not possible, he says as part of his introduction. It always must be salvation from sin. As well speak of liberty while yet the irons are upon a man's wrists, or boast of healing while the disease waxes worse and worse, or glory in victory when the army is on the point of surrendering, as to dream of salvation in Christ while the sinner continues to give full swing to his evil passions. Grace and holiness are as inseparable as light and heat in the sun. True faith in Jesus in every case leads to an abhorrence of every false way and to a perseverance in the paths of holiness even unto the end. This sermon, while it is uh, emphasising one of the things about which Spurgeon is perpetually concerned, that is the proper connection between uh, a genuine understanding of God's grace in Christ and a genuine life of godliness that flows out of that union with Christ that comes by faith, he is in this sermon, working in an interesting way with his text. In some respects, I think I'd say he's he's more textual than usual. He really is a gripping and wrestling with the, the text of his sermon. And he's very careful, as he often is, to put it into its context. He's showing the Corinthians how wrong they were to tolerate an incestuous person in their midst. And he's comparing the spirit of uncleanness to an evil leaven. Uh, and what he does in the course of this sermon, while he's got uh, three fairly substantial headings, he, he really does have uh, less of his normal uh, point and sub-point structure. That comes in a little bit toward the end. But there's almost more of a, a sort of a logical rolling forward of each of the points attached to the text. So it's a different kind of approach to some of those which we've seen in Spurgeon. He's not uh, wedded to any particular one. I think there are a few forms with which he's uh, typically most comfortable. 
But here's one where he's really sticking with his text, trying to understand very carefully what it means in its context, uh, not just in terms of the Corinthian epistle, but tying it in with the whole history of the Passover, full of Christ as he so often is. Uh, you're not going to find uh, beyond the the overarching one, two, three headings, a sort of a firstly, secondly, thirdly subheading structure. But it's it'll be interesting for us to try and trace out this sort of logical progression, this development of thought through the sermon. So those three headings that give us the overarching structure are, first of all, considering the happy condition of believers. Next, the holy duty commended to them, which runs side by side with that privilege. And thirdly, how the happiness and holiness of believers, how the holiness and happiness of believers act and react upon each other. So happiness flowing into holiness and holiness flowing into happiness. The first then, the happy condition of all true believers in Christ. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This feast then is what Spurgeon calls the habitual, normal state of a Christian. That is the state of being in perfect security. We are in Christ Jesus. The Lord has been sacrificed for or instead of us. He is the lamb of our Passover, sacrificed in our behalf that we might not be sacrificed, roasted in the fire of suffering that we might go free. It is by the process of substitution that, according to abundant scriptures, believing sinners are passed over in judgment and so escape eternal condemnation. So we begin with this feast of security. We are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why are we so sure? Because our sacrifice has already been slain. The sacrifice by which we're delivered is complete. There is nothing more that needs to happen for us to be right with God. All that was wanted to atone for our sin, all that was required to vindicate the law of God, all of that's already offered, and there's nothing left to be presented by so-called priests on earth or to be made up by the penances and payments of their dupes. Our Passover is sacrificed. Let others offer what they will. Ours is the lamb once slain, and there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Spurgeon's uh, taking a, a, a typical aim at the uh, the sacramentarians in the Church of England and the Roman Catholic congregations behind them is emphasizing the fact that our sacrifice is once and for all accomplished in Christ Jesus. And that completeness of sacrifice is indeed the main part of the festival which the Christian should perpetually keep. If there were anything yet to be done, if the substitutionary sacrifice were imperfect, how could we celebrate the feast? Anxiety would destroy all enjoyment. But it is finished. That's the joyous peal which rings us into the celestial banquet of present peace. The fact that we are complete in him, perfect in Christ Jesus, is our soul's deepest delight. And if our sacrifice is slain, here's that logical progression clinging to and anchored to the text. If our sacrifice is slain, therefore let us keep the feast. This is what follows on. Jesus Christ, the Paschal or Passover lamb, not only was offered as a sacrifice towards God, but has become a festival towards ourselves. In Jesus Christ, we have communion with God and joy and peace through, the, through believing. 
So we are then to keep the feast by feeding upon Jesus Christ. You see there the the logical flow here. The Paschal Lamb was not slain to be looked at or laid by in store or merely made a subject of conversation, but slain to be fed upon. If we have a sacrifice, we feed upon it. If we have a slain Christ, we feed upon him by faith. The infinite love of the great sacrifice, he says, the amazing wisdom of it, the transcendent merit of it, the abounding fullness of the blessings which it secures, let your souls consider these things and feed upon them till they are satisfied with fervour and full of the goodness of the Lord. The infinite love of the great sacrifice, the amazing wisdom of it, the transcendent merit of it, the abounding fullness of the blessings which it secures. Let your souls consider these things and feed upon them till they are satisfied with favour and full of the goodness of the Lord. You see here how Spurgeon is, uh, it's, it's one of the things that he so often does. He kind of, uh, there's a there's this beautiful momentum in his mind and, and the words and the phrases and they just roll out of him and they roll over themselves and all these notions come out in this rich and varied language. It's, it's wonderful. Here is a festival, the viands of which never can be exhausted and from which the guests need never depart. Remember that at the Paschal Supper the whole of the Lamb was intended to be eaten. And even thus, O believer, the whole of Christ thou art to feed upon. No part of Christ is denied thee, neither his humiliation nor his glory, his kingship nor his priesthood, his Godhead nor his manhood. All this has he given to thee and for thee, and thou art now to nourish thy soul by meditating upon him. So you've got the nourishment of feeding upon Christ. But you've also got something more, says Spurgeon. You've got joy. You've got exhilaration. In this sense too, keep a lifelong feast. The Christian is not only to take the doctrines which concern Christ to build up his soul with them as the body is built up with food, but he may draw from them the wine of joy and the new wine of delight. What a vista of glory then opens before our eyes at the mention of that word, heirs of God. All things are ours, because Christ our Passover has been slain for us. My brothers then, do not let your religion merely keep you calm and quiet. Look for bursts of joy. He says this should thrill your soul. What you have in Christ, you've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. You're a redeemed man. Sin has been put away. God is reconciled to you in the Saviour. That gives you rejoicing. That gives you cause for delight. Our Passover is perpetual then. It has no times and seasons, but is lifelong. Salute your God each morning with your hymn of praise, redeemed ones. Let not the sun go down without another hymn of thanksgiving. Praise him, praise him, praise him, says the preacher. Ceaseless as your mercies, let his praises be. Oh, for the life of heaven on earth, to be always praising God. Our sacrifice is slain. Therefore let us keep this feast of daily adoration and hourly thankfulness to him who passed us by in mercy when he might have smitten us in wrath. And then he says, remember that this Passover is meant to be communicated to others. The father explains to his children his, uh, the, the meaning, the, the intention of this ordinance. And says Spurgeon, that should be part of our continual festival and I do not know a more delightful duty to tell to others what our redeeming Lord has done. Too many of you need to be stirred up to this pleasant duty. 
when you once break through those cowardly, wicked habits, for I cannot help thinking them so in many of you, which lock your mouths and prevent you giving Jesus praise, you will find it sweet to tell to your children and kinsfolk the story of the atoning sacrifice. You see how he's tying this in again, not just the immediate context, the Corinthian context, but now saying, remember, Paul is drawing on all this rich imagery of the uh, the Passover in Israel's history. And he says, I'm not talking now about the Lord's Supper. I'm not referring to that emblematic feast at all. Really careful here in his handling of the text. He says, I'm talking about our daily lifelong fellowship with Jesus. Our keeping of the feast in this sense is not a matter for times and seasons, for festivals and holidays. It is always our position. So he says, go on looking to the Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. And if you are downcast and if you are distressed, yes, it's true we're full of corruptions. It's true we're full of troubles. But remember that you have a Christ who has been made a curse for you so that you cannot any longer be regarded as accursed. And that is the note of your thanksgiving. If you had all the world and derived comfort from it for a time, in the end it would become bitter as wormwood. Bitter herbs, all things beneath the sky must be. Only Jesus is the true feast. My soul rejoice in the Lord always, for you always have reason to triumph, since Jesus Christ is slain. So then you have this glorious feast to which you are called, a happy condition as a true believer in Christ. And with that then, a holy duty commended to us. Here is his second main point. So you've got this overarching, firstly, secondly, thirdly, and under it you've got this working through the text. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleaven of of sincerity and truth. So leaven is used in Scripture, he says. We believe in every case only one in which a question could be raised as the emblem of sin. This arises partly from the sourness of the leaven. And we ourselves, being uh, leavened with evil, find leaven somewhat palatable at first, but God who hates all evil puts away the type in all its stages. Sin, which for a while may seem pleasant, will soon be nauseous even to the sinner. But the very least degree of sin is obnoxious to God. We cannot tell how much God hates sin. With the entire intensity of his infinite nature, he loathes it. He cannot look upon iniquity. It is detestable to him. The fire of his wrath will burn forever against it because sin is infinitely loathsome to his pure and holy nature. Sin then is a corruption. It dissolves the very fabric of society. It dissolves the constitution of man. Wherever it gets into our nature, it puts it out of order. It disjoints it. It destroys its excellence and poisons its purity. Leaven also spreads, gets its way through the whole lump of the flour. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so it is with sin. So now you've got history and you've got this uh, imagery uh, loading on top of each other. And says Spurgeon, if the leaven of evil is permitted in a church, it will work its way through the whole of it. And he identifies false doctrine and foul living. 
in the Christian church, a little false doctrine is sure to pave the way for greater departures from truth so that no one can predict the end and result of the first false teaching. You cannot say, I will be so far unorthodox. You might as well break the dikes of Holland and bid the sea be moderate in all its encroachments. So you need to hold fast to all the truth. You cannot allow any part of it to be diluted. The renunciation of one truth, says Spurgeon, almost necessarily leads to the giving up of another. And before a man is half aware of it himself, he's let go of the gospel. I greatly fear that the denial of the eternity of future punishment is but one wave of an incoming sea of infidelity. Deny the awful character of the desert of sin and the substitutionary work of Christ will soon follow. Spurgeon does this fairly often and we're not even yet in the period of the the full-on downgrade, but he does keep emphasising the fact that you have to take the whole truth of God in all its parts. You cannot put away the fall of man. You cannot put away the eternity of punishment. You cannot in any way undermine the, uh, the identity of Christ in his Godhead and in his manhood. All of this in its entirety must be held to. But it's not just false doctrine. It's foul living or evil living, equally obnoxious in the church. Tolerated in one, it will soon be excused in another, and it lowers the tone of the life of the whole church with regard to sin. If you permit one sin, one false doctrine in a church knowingly and wittingly, none can tell the extent to which that evil may ultimately go. The church, therefore, is to be purged of practical and doctrinal evil as diligently as possible. But now he brings it in closer to home. Let's view the text as relating to ourselves, he says, because that's what uh, the apostle now has in mind as he thinks about the custom of the Jews at the Passover. And Spurgeon spends a little bit of time here talking about the, uh, the habit or tradition of the Jews. And he tells us that as the Jew uh, in his household would go through the home in an evening, making sure there's not a particle of anything with leaven in it, the servants and others searching for every crumb, clothes shaken, cupboards empty, drawers opened. If a mouse ran across the room supposed to be carrying a crumb of bread into its hole, they trembled lest a curse should rest upon the home. They were strict so strict that Christ even got to the point of rebuking them because they strained at gnats while swallowing camels. But, says Spurgeon, we have no need to fear excessive strictness in getting rid of sin. With as scrupulous a care as the Israelite purged out the leaven from his house, we are to purge out all sin from ourselves, from our conduct, from our conversation. Note well, We do not urge you, says Spurgeon, to purge out sin in order that you may save yourselves. Why not? Well, Christ our Passover is slain. Our salvation has been secured. But that salvation being secured, in order that we may keep the feast and unbrokenly possess the joy of salvation, we are to purge out the leaven of sin. So then, in the same way as the the Israelites searched out his house for the leaven in in physical form, so we are to search our hearts for the leaven of sin. Many a Christian man has not found out the sinfulness of some actions for years after his conversion, says Spurgeon. I'm very conscious that certain matters which I thought very lightly of years ago would greatly trouble my conscience now. It's interesting that progress, isn't it? 
Some of us seem to think that as we get maturer, sin matters less to us. No, says Spurgeon, the more mature you become, the more conscious you are of the weight of sin. As I have obtained light upon certain sins, he goes on, I have through grace put them away, and I expect as long as I live to find something which, viewed in a brighter light and from a higher standing, will be discovered to be sinful, and I desire grace to have done with it. So he says, as the candle went out, as the the searching and sweeping went on, so every part of our nature needs searching. The reins, the heart, the judgment, all must be cleansed. Purge out the old leaven wherever it has penetrated. It must come away, or else, though we are safe beneath the blood, we shall not know and enjoy our safety. The feast cannot be kept while the old leaven is willfully left within us. I think you get a sense here. He's struggling to hold the, uh, the, the, the progress of his sermon within the metaphor. He says, the head of the household usually performed the search, so let your best powers of judgment be exercised upon yourself. Let your main and chief thought be, now that you are saved, to get rid of sin. Let the master powers of your soul be called into this purging work and ask the master himself to aid you. And then uh, there was the candle, wasn't there, that no leaven might escape notice. So take the candle of God's word, take the candle of his Holy Spirit. To be approved of men is but a poor standard for a Christian. Does your own heart reproach you? Does the word of God reproach you? To be measuring myself by my fellow men and saying, compared with them, I'm generous to the poor and diligent in God's service. This is to be proud because you're taller than pygmies or fairer than blackamoors. There must be no lower standard for us, says Spurgeon, than the perfection of Christ. Do not measure yourself by imperfection, No attainment must ever satisfy us until we are conformed to his image who is the firstborn among many brothers. You'll tell me I'm holding up a high standard. I am, but then you have a great helper and I'll show you in a moment how you may be of good cheer concerning this business. It's a nice pastoral touch, isn't it? Just uh, helping us to remember that he's not going to leave us in, in misery and wondering how we do this. He says you're going to need many sweepings. Again, he's he's used that illustration of the Israelites searching out the house to give us this uh, pastoral counsel. Sin has evermore a swelling tendency, and until the Holy Spirit has cut up the last root of sin, evil will grow up again in the heart. At the scent of water it will bud and put forth once again its shoots. Here is work for all time, enough to keep us busy till we land in eternity. And then again, he goes back to his text. Remember what he's doing. He's really working through this. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleaven of sincerity and truth. And so he says, here are some of the particular things that we need to watch out for. Malice and wickedness. Is a Christian man likely to be malicious? I trust in the strong sense of that term we've done with malice. But alas, he says, I've known believers who have a very keen sense of right and therein have been commendable, but who have too much indulged the spirit deprecated here. That is to say, they've been very censorious, very angry and severe, angry with other people for not being perfect. Though not perfect themselves, and though they know that if they're better than others, the grace of God has made them so, 
yet still they are bitter and untender towards the imperfections of Christian people, and they cherish feelings of prejudice, suspicion, and ill will. Isn't that so much of allegedly Christian media? Just a a, a, a sense that we're better than everybody else. We profess that we know we're sinners, but it's still there's this anger and antagonism toward others. Such Christians do not seek the improvement of the faulty, but rather their exposure and condemnation. They hunt down sincere but faulty people and denounce them. In some believers, there's too much of the leaven of unkind talking. They speak to one another about the faults of their brethren. Might say we publish it abroad now. And in the process of retailing, characters are injured and reputations marred. Spurgeon says, if I've been injured by someone, I must forgive him. If I find him to fault to be faulty, I must love him till he gets better. If I cannot make him better by ordinary love, I must love him more, even as Christ loved his church. He did not love her because she was without spot or wrinkle, but to get the spots and wrinkles out of her. He loved her into holiness. And then every form of hypocrisy, for the apostle tells us to eat the Passover with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So do not let us leave off talking beyond our experience. Let us never pray beyond what we mean. Ask God, my brother, to cleanse us from all unreality, that nothing may be in us but true metal. There's a strong temptation among Christian ministers and Christian men of all sorts to seem to be a little more than they are. God save us from it. The slightest taint of hypocrisy should be abhorred by the Christian man. All ill will and all mere seeming, more mere appearing, should be detestable to the Christian. For where these are, there can be little or no communion with Jesus. The fellowship of heaven is not enjoyed where the leaven of hell is endured. And so he's having to press on. He's he's gripping his text again. He's governed by the phrases. He's trying to work through the substance. Uh, you get the sense that his time is passing. Uh, he hasn't been able to deal so much with, with wickedness, but concentrated on malice, a hypocrisy to cover the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And now this last point, that the happiness of the believer acts upon his holiness and his holiness upon his happiness. First of all, then, the happiness acts, acts upon the holiness. Every taste you get of redeeming love makes you feel that sin is a cruel and detestable thing, and therefore you will destroy it. Has Christ loved me and died for me, he asks? Then I am his, and if I am his, I cannot live in sin. If I am redeemed, how can I continue a slave? If I belong to Jesus, I cannot serve the devil. I must be rid of sin." And so he, he puts it all in the first person. He brings it close to home. Yes, the Israelite gave up leavened bread, but soon had angels' food in the place of it. So the Christian says, I give up these sins. They were sweet to me once, and now they're sour, stinking, corrupt leaven. I shall receive nobler enjoyments. Fellowship with heaven shall be my portion. I may gladly part with leaven, for I am called to eat the bread of angels, nay, the very bread of of God. And two, the Christian knows that his sin is forgiven, feeling that the God who could put away his load of sin will surely help to conquer his corruptions. Listen to what he says, when I see Calvary, I believe everything to be possible. If Jesus can blot out sin, his spirit can subdue it. Isn't that wonderful? When I see Calvary, I believe everything to be possible. 
If Jesus can blot out sin, his spirit can subdue it. Happiness acts upon the holiness. We have to consider Christ in all the glory of his finished work, and that will make us desire and seek after holiness. And on the opposite side, or opposite side, they're not in contrast with each other, but complementary to one another, this holiness produces happiness. How quiet does the soul become when the man feels, I have done that which was right, I have given up that which was evil. I grant you that the deep peace of the believer arises from the sprinkled blood, says Spurgeon. Again, he doesn't want us to dismiss the finality and security of the atoning work, but it is enjoyed, the the objectivity into the subjectivity. It is more enjoyed by purging out the leaven. You question yourself and say, can I believe in Christ if I am living in sin? And you get back the comfortable sense that Jesus is yours when you can honestly feel that you have, by the Holy Spirit, renounced your sins. So there's a, there's a real experiential connection between the battle against sin and the happiness of the believer. I am sure you will find that at the bottom, our want of fellowship with Christ arises from our want of careful walking before the Lord. My dear brother, he says, if you don't walk in the light as Christ is in the light, it's not because he's not willing that you should walk in his light. It's because you keep at a distance from him and so walk in darkness. Do you want to be happy? Then seek after that holiness which pleases the Lord. What is it that makes God's people look so sad? The old leaven. Let us keep the feast, says the apostle, but it's useless to hope to do so while we keep the leaven. Perhaps there is one thing which we know to be our duty, but we've not attended to it, and that one neglect will break up our festival. Jesus will not then commune with neglectors of his will. Jesus will have no leaven where he is, this leaven of sin. If you tolerate that which is nauseous to him, do not expect a comfortable word from him. If you walk contrary to him, he will walk contrary to you. Keep your heart then tender before God, ready to be moved by the faintest breath of his spirit. Ask to be like sensitive plants that you may shrivel up at the touch of sin and only open out in the presence of your Lord and Master. And as so often, he won't leave the unconverted without a word. Dear soul, if you would be saved, do not begin at the wrong end. Begin with the Saviour's blood. Begin with Calvary's cross. Go there as a poor sinner and look to him, and then after that we will say, let us keep the feast, and we will diligently see to it in his strength that the leaven be put away. My friends, you you may just hear this and, and give your amen to it. It may be everything that you already believe, or you may have been put in an environment or have been brought up in a context where the connection between uh, the the reality of salvation and the evidence of sanctification has somehow been severed where there's no apparent connection between holiness and happiness. Hear Spurgeon if that is the case. If you would be happy, then you need to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. You have a feast because Christ is your Passover. You purge out, therefore, the old leaven at every point in finding greater happiness you pursue greater holiness and in attaining greater holiness you find greater happiness. This is the rule of Christian living. 
May God grant to each one of us that we might pursue it more and more and that he would give us a, not just a clearer sense of Christ as our Passover, but also a, a greater desire for that holiness which is pleasing to him. Thank you for listening this week. If you want to hear more, you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts together with other similar material. Lord willing, next week we'll be in Sermon 973, The Power of Christ Illustrated by the Resurrection. And I do hope that you will join us on that occasion. You can follow us in the meantime on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or X at Reading Spurgeon, depending on what you're willing to call it these days. And please do, if you get a chance, leave a review or a rating or subscribe to us. It really does make a difference. Uh, It helps us to reach more people and we hope do more good, not so much by thinking about Spurgeon, but by focusing on the Christ that Spurgeon preached and delighting to know him more and more, both as uh, those who walk in his ways and I trust for many of us, those who seek to make him known. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join us again. God bless until then.